So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Man fans. Ollie Man here with The Modern Man. And hello to Matt Callahan, uh, who's written in to say, I have been listening to the show since episode one. And while I listen to many podcasts during the week, you are my favourite. Take that, Desert Island Discs. Desert Island Dicks, more like. Matt continues, uh, despite being a law-abiding citizen... Uh, That's never a great way to start a sentence, is it? Uh, One of my greatest fears is ending up in prison. I am possibly the least equipped person to be able to handle myself with the subsequent consequences, but this would be as nothing compared to the ordeal of a serving police officer ending up in this exact situation. And that is what happened to PC Michael Bunting. His book, A Fair Cop, says Matt, is the most gripping and engrossing book I've ever read, and I think he would make for a fascinating interview. Uh, Well, guess what, Matt? You were absolutely right. Uh, At your request, I tracked down Michael. He's not a police officer anymore. He's a sports therapist. I drove up to see him in Leeds. We had a chat, and wow. It is a very compelling tale, which he tells brilliantly. Uh, Albeit, you can totally tell he used to be a police officer because he uses slightly detached words, words like melee and fracas and interaction, when what he is describing is violence that's happening to him. But uh, it is no less compelling for that. I hope you enjoy it, Matt. And uh, and you, people who are not Matt, uh, remember, if you have an idea for the show, someone you think that I should go and meet in person and interview, you can even nominate yourself, um, do get in touch via the feedback form on our website, modernman.co.uk, modernmanwith2ends.co.uk. Uh, we can't reply to all of your emails, but we do read every single one of them. And as you can see, in time, many of them do end up on the show. Uh, whilst you are on our website, do also remember to click beer money. Uh, that is how you can sign up to support our show, our little show, our independent podcast from as little as £3.60 per month. That is the average cost of a pint of beer in Britain. Although on that, thank you to Mike, who has just written in to say, I work in London where a beer costs at least a fiver. How do I change my contribution to a fiver? Uh, well, Mike, uh, that's a question I'm always very happy to answer. Uh, I've done it for you. If you ever want to increase, or, or decrease actually, your contribution to the show, do write in to us. We can amend that for you. Uh, we don't, by the way, have any access to your credit card details or anything like that. It's all hosted on a secure server by Moonclerk, or you can use PayPal to donate if you prefer. However you do it, all the links are on our website, monman.co.uk. We really appreciate it. Advertising alone does not cover the costs of this production. So please do donate if you can. Uh, right, on this week's episode, you will learn what perceptual dis- distortion is. Uh, You'll learn how to mix the perfect cocktail and you'll learn to take a good hard look, motherfucker, because Ollie Pitt's on a boat, he's on a boat, he's on a houseboat. Let's go. On this week's Modern Man. I was now an inmate that had to survive in prison and I was going to be a very unpopular inmate that everybody would want a piece of. Violence, courage and the pursuit of justice. The cop who went to prison. Well, this is not a standard question of dick. And Alex Fox provides yet more reasons to always wear a condom. But first, it's time to talk trends. It's the zeitgeist with a man who's wearing little bicycles on his shorts today. It's Ollie Pitt. Yes, in protest. At what, the Tour de France? No, just at cyclists in general. Okay, Cue well, the text messages. So long as it doesn't become a dirty protest. What? Now, you were challenged last episode by Manfan Debs to spend a weekend on a houseboat mm-hmm. to investigate the trend for millennials living on the water. How did that go? I met with a chap called George, and George has been living on a Dutch barge for three years on a residential mooring on this stretch of water. And he bought this boat three years ago outright. He owns it outright. And uh, he did so because the average house price in London is like 600 grand. Yeah. 
flats cost 600 grand, don't yeah. they? I don't know what a house costs. And in this part of London especially, like it's a really expensive place. So he, he just wanted his own space. And so he looked into houseboat stuff and he looked into it for about a year. And he thought, yes, I can do this. He didn't tell me exactly how much the boat cost. But when we were there, I saw one or two boats which were similar and they range in price from about thirty to sixty thousand pounds. Wow! So you can live in a desirable location, which for some reason you're not telling us, for thirty thousand pounds outright. Yeah, uh, the the reason I'm not telling you is because yeah. his rent for the mooring is four hundred pounds a month. Uh-huh. That's cheap, and the reason it's cheap is because it's technically not a residential mooring, which is why I don't want to tell you oh, where it okay. is. He's not doing anything wrong. He's not doing anything against the law. Everybody that lives there is a resident, and they're there permanently. But it's not an official residential mooring. A typical residential mooring in London will cost you between £1,000 and £1,500 a month. So oh, OK, so it's not that cheap. I mean, OK, yes, compared I mean, to is. buying a £600,000 house, yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. But but £1,500 to rent a flat mm-hmm. is perfectly possible, isn't it? You can rent a central London flat if it's a three-bedroom flat. You could rent one of those bedrooms for £1,500 a month easily. Yeah, but I guess the so other... So I live on a boat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a really good point, but he's a bit of an anomaly in that he has a residential mooring. So a lot of younger people especially, so sort of 35 younger, they will move around the canal system and you have to move every two weeks. And your boat has to travel between 20 and 30 miles a year. And there are people from the Canal River Trust that go around checking that you've moved. And if you don't, you get a fine. And how do you, I mean, if you're trying to get a job and you need to provide an address or actually you just want to get your mail, how does that work? That's one of the problems that he told me about is, is, is an address. So he, co- he couldn't get credit cards or anything like that. Yeah. So he uses his mum's address. So his mum lives in the countryside. So you giving him John Fisher's address. <laughs> you could have had John Fisher's address, which is the same as my address. But don't tell anybody that. That's the first thing that we spoke about, really. When I arrived there, it was this really idyllic scene. Mm. Like you immediately get this sense of tranquility and a really... A relatively rough part of London. That sounds a bit harsh, but but it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, while we were there, we saw five armed police guards raid a house the other side, right opposite the boat, with a police helicopter. And I'm not joking. Heard don't the get door... that on your dinner boat tour no, of the Thames, you do you? Don't. Heard the door bang down. <laughs> it was like, oh, police, get on the floor. Right. Yeah. Whilst we were sat, you know, sort of on the on the deck of the boat, chilling out in the sunshine. And then I started talking to George about like the reality of it I asked him about winter mm. his, he's been in the boat for three years and his fir- he moved in in October in an October uh-huh. so his first experience of living on a boat was through a winter and he was like it's horrible and he really struggles through winter and he spends a lot of the time going to his girlfriend's mum's house because it's that much of a struggle and it's really difficult So, if you, like, can you have a fire on a boat? yes and he does Okay. so that's his main source of heating some of the boats have central heating do they? yeah but he has how does that work? you don't have a boiler on the boat do you? You can, why couldn't you have a boiler on a boat? Well, you need gas. You're off-grid, so all of your fuel, everything, your electricity, your you know, your heating fuel or whatever, you have to buy it. So whether that's in a canister or that's logs or coal or electricity from the sun, it yeah. has to come in some way. So if you want a boiler, you need gas. He does have a boiler on board cause, to heat the water for the shower and things like that. But he's got a fire there as well because it's one of the most economical ways for him to heat his house. And the way that he buys it is a guy comes around on a boat and he can hear him coming along in the morning sometimes. And he's like... Well, I don't know if he shouts, Chutney, all right, mate, you want some coal? Here's some coal. I'm not, I'm not sure it's like that, but that's the impression I got of it. Sure. It's lovely. It's really idyllic. I met some of his neighbours. Now, when you say you met some of his neighbours, that's interesting in and of itself, because if you went to stay with almost anyone else in London for a day, you would not meet their neighbours. Yeah. So is there more of a collegiate feeling, do you think, amongst people who live on boats? Yeah, if you're an introvert, forget it. You don't want to live on a boat because you have to talk to people. You live in really close quarters. Think of it as permanent camping, right? That's Mm. what it's like. Mm. And when George first moved on uh, his boat three years ago, he had no experience of boating at all. And he told me that you become really dependent on your neighbours because you can see how they manoeuvre their boat or like how good they are, how long you can chat to them and say, oh, how long have you been on your boat? And then you say, oh, could you help me with this, that and the other? And if you're living on a boat, you have to think about things that you wouldn't normally think about. Mm. So he told me that when he goes out shopping for any kind of electronics, the first thing he looks at is how much power it draws. That is the first thing he will look at. Mm. So it's completely changed. Like if he, if he sees something and it's like, oh no, that's, that consumes way too much power, he just won't bother. He doesn't have a TV in his house. So it's a choice, is it, between having a TV or having a shower? The way that it runs is he has some uh, leisure batteries. They're basically big car batteries, uh-huh. which are in the hole somewhere. You don't see them. And they're charged up by either the engine, which is an old bus engine, by the, by the way, which I thought was really fascinating, yeah. and uh, or a generator. So he has to charge them up every once in a while. So if you start drawing loads of energy on a big, massive flat-screen TV, which you could have mm. if you wanted to, mm. then, yeah, that if you've got a power shower, then that's taking power for your power shower. So you, every bit of power that you use, you have to think about it. 
You probably don't. I don't. When no. I'm at home, I just I plug it in, switch it on. But also, I leave stuff plugged in that doesn't need to be plugged. I leave chargers plugged in and turned on mm-hmm. long after they've been charging something. You know, I just don't think about it. That was one of the first things I noticed when I got on there, is that living on a boat completely dictates your entire approach to life in general. He's a very laid-back, relaxed kind of bloke. And well, he doesn't watch the news. He doesn't watch the news. <laughs> no, he doesn't watch the news. And the, and his place isn't littered with like gadgets and technology. He has it. He's got the internet and he's got like it's, you know he's got a little touchscreen computer and stuff. But it just felt like a really relaxed environment where actually your life is dictated by the pace of the canal. And a brilliant example of that was I wanted to get a sense of what it was actually like to do things like like well, you know he needs water, so he's got to go and fill up with water. So we decided to go and fill up with water. Uh-huh. We started the engine. We were about to go down. We had to uh, take the boat about a mile down the canal to get it. And as we were just about to go, this chap sort of sailed past and he said, oh, how busy is it down there? And he goes, oh, you can forget it. It's really busy because it's a sunny day, tourists, different people on their boats. And he's like, oh, okay, no worries. Turned it off. We didn't leave for another two hours. Mm. But if you're impatient, you want to do stuff now, you're planning on living in a boat, forget it. You have to go with the pace of the canal. Where would he get the water from, though? Is there a place? Just tap. There's a communal tap on the water? Yes, that's right, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so you go down to the tap literally hose straight in the tanks um his bed is actually about mm, possibly four and a half feet high because underneath it is all the water tanks and stuff and what about having a poo so yeah poo is an interesting there's three (laughs) types there's three types of toilet there's one where yeah you basically shit in a massive tank yeah uh and then you have to have it pumped out every once in a while and they can smell like when they get full he said sometimes i can't tell whether it's mine or the cat litter tray right and it's like that's He's like, it is gross. It's not where you want to sleep. No. No. You've got to accept it's gross, right? Yeah. Um, The other types of toilet are called cassette toilets. Like, his toilet wasn't full, so we couldn't empty it. I couldn't get the pooey, the full pooey experience. But I got to see a cassette toilet. And it's basically, uh, just think of a a giant cassette tape that fills with shit, basically. And then you take it out. I can't quite visualise that. Just think a big tank that sort of, like, clips it. Right? Sure. So you can put That's it a out. less vivid description. Yeah, and then you the can. The one like, you said before was like Cronenbergian. You know, you know, like wheelie bags at the airport. Wheelie bags at the airport. Like you have a wheelie bag, a suitcase. Yeah. Wheelie bag. Suitcase. Everybody listening is going wheelie bag. No, no, no. All suitcases now have wheels on, so the distinction is not valid. Okay, a, a suitcase. suitcase. Yeah. Imagine a suitcase full of shit. No one walks around with. <laughs> right. Fine. Okay. So you wheel that, you take that down to the, the poo drop-off station. Basically, you know, those aren't like those squat toilets you get in France. Yes, oh God, yeah. It's basically one of those, right. and you just chuck it in. So I'm guessing the reason for that is you can chuck the poo in there, and then if you need one, you'll have a little squat on a poo. Sure. Yeah. Okay, and what's the third option, because neither Com- of those appeal? Compost. I'd go compost, I think. Yeah. And did George acknowledge that this is a trend? That this is something that he's seen more young people get into recently and, and something that's growing. Yeah, and actually just being there, you couldn't help but notice that. So, like, predominantly young people, sort of mid-30s and younger, on the river. And the other side of the river where people navigate, you know, they have to move every two weeks, even more so. So, are you tempted to live on a boat? When I went, it was beautiful. In the summer, yeah, I totally get it. In the winter, just know, like your your entire life in the winter is dictated by the weather. If you're on a boat and it's raining, and it's horrible and it's cold, you've got to light the fire, keep an eye on the fire. Then you think, oh, should I use my cooker? You're like, oh no, because I'm low on gas. Or oh, I might have a nice warm hot bath. No, forget it. I've got enough water. No. Okay, uh, time to uh, give you your challenge for next week's show, which is our equivalent of wheeling a cassette full of shit over to you. And it comes from Manfan <laughs> Angus, who says, I'd like Ollie to become a wiki master. A what? Yeah, I thought maybe this is like a Star Wars thing that I didn't understand, but yeah. it isn't. Okay. It, he means someone who's really good at Wikipedia. Good at Wikipedia? Yeah, so they th- well, let me finish reading his message. And I'd like him to do all the things I'd like to, but have no time for. Edit pages and make whole new ones. Contribute to human knowledge. And he thinks I've got time for that, does he? <laughs> I think Wikipedia isn't a trend. Wikipedia's been around for a long time now. Mm. But have you ever tried actually editing a page that's of any substance on Wikipedia? Because it's really difficult. Like, you put something and then some nerd somewhere in the world jumps in and says, oh, no, that's not accurate. And I haven't, and like, I want to know how you become one of those guys. Yeah, I, no, I've never tried editing one. But the one thing I have noticed with them is if someone dies or something big on the news happens and you go on that wiki page, mm. it says, so-and-so-and-so-and-so, 
updated three seconds ago. Yeah. And you're like, who's that on that page at that point doing that? Well, Do someone like now? you who's gone to have a look at it, I suppose, but just more wiki-wise. Uh, yeah, wiki, wiki-wiki-wise. Yeah, but it would have to have a level of accuracy that, like, I, I'm not very accurate personally. I'm going to fill the world with misinformation. This is a brilliant challenge. I love it. <laughs> Become a wiki master is the challenge. Yeah. What's lying behind it from my point of view is I am interested in it because every time I've tried to edit a page, I just can't be asked. I get to the stage where I'm, it's a bit like the cryptocurrency thing. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I get that it's a thing, but it's not worth the effort that I'm having to put into it for it to become part of my life that I edit Wikipedia pages because it's too difficult to understand it. I think most people feel like that. Break that wall down for us, Ollie. Can I edit your page? <sighs> I'm reticent to say yes because... I'm just going to do it anyway. No, I'll tell you why. It's because of the misinformation thing. So if we now make a challenge on the show where I'm like, yeah, 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 edit the Ollie Man page, for the rest of my life, every time I get interviewed by anyone, they'll be like, so, you went to school with someone who collected dinosaur shells or whatever some bullshit thing that someone's put on the thing. What's going in? <laughs> dinosaur shells aren't even a thing, are they? Dinosaur eggs are a thing. Yeah, yeah it, a shell What would a egg. dinosaur shell be? Oh, I suppose, yeah, the shell of a dinosaur egg. Yeah. Right, fine, yes, you can put that in my Wikipedia profile if you want. <laughs> Um, anyway, right. Yeah, good luck. Thanks. Hello, man fans. My name's Alex, and I'm the bar manager from Beanie Green Southbank. And here are my tips for making the perfect summer cocktail. Uh, my perfect summer cocktail is the Tommy's Margarita, the perfect balance between sweetness and sharpness, and excellent for lazing around on a summer's day. Tip number one get your finest tequila. It's better to use white tequila. If you can find a really nice one, you probably have to go to Mexico to find it. Probably the most expensive one you can find is the nicest one. So tip number two, the easiest way to do it is to use brown sugar syrup by diluting sugar, brown sugar with hot water, one to one ratio. But to get the perfect Tommy's Margarita, the best thing to use is agave syrup. Um, which is a little bit harder to find, but if you do, you, you get the real thick sweetness from that, from that agave nectar, which is derived from the agave plant. You'll be able to find that in most supermarkets or in a health food store. And tip number three is use freshly squeezed lime juice. So it's one part lime juice, one part agave syrup or brown sugar syrup, and two parts tequila. Shaking it over ice, There's two options for your glass. Either you can use a coupe glass, which is a standard margarita glass, which looks really pretty, or you can use a standard rocks glass, and you can actually serve it over ice if you like as well. The best thing to do is to rim the glass with salt using a wedge of lime to get the rim of the glass all sticky, dip it in the salt, pour the the margarita into the glass, and garnish that with a wedge of lime over the glass. These are my top three tips for making the perfect summer cocktail. And be sure to come and find us, Beanie Green Southbank, and I'll make you one personally. Thanks to Alex for his life hacks, sponsored by Podcast Lounge for Windows. Podcast Lounge is the new podcatcher for Windows 10 devices. It's an app where you can discover, subscribe, and enjoy podcasts. Now introducing Smart Playlists, where you can queue up all the new episodes across all your favourites from the last week with a single click. Or thud, if you're using a touchscreen. You get the idea. What will you get up to in the lounge? Go to Windows 10 Store and download your free trial of Podcast Lounge now. Now, some people always knew what they wanted to do for a living. Perhaps you're one of them. In my case, the cassettes I made of the radio station I created in my bedroom when I was eight suggest I've never strayed too far from the tracks. Michael Bunting always wanted to be a police officer. His dad was one, and when he was just 19, he became one too, dropping out of a linguistics course at university to go and follow his dream. He was even given his dad's old West Riding Constabulary collar number, 451, and eventually transferred to the busy Leeds City Centre Division at Milgarth Police Station. Then, one night, after four and a half years of successful service, Michael's life changed forever. I was on a night shift, which then would be 10pm till 6am in the Milgarth division, which is Leeds City Centre. There were three of us in the car, which was unusual. I was driving it, um, myself and my partner, but we'd collected a colleague from Leeds General Infirmary Hospital because he was taking a statement there. Just as we were doing so, we got a call of an immediate graded log saying, can you get to 
56 Harold Terrace, Burley Leeds, there, there's a, a, a disturbance. We've got a female caller, extremely distressed. We can hear a fracas in the background. There's, there's a number of male voices that are clearly um, being aggressive towards each other. And you're thinking, okay, it's a domestic, there's three of us. Run of the mill. Yeah, standard, the mill standard kind of call. Standard kind of call. What did you think was going to happen when you got there? You prepare your mind and, and yourself for the fact that there's going to be some physical confrontation based on what the call handler is telling you. But other than getting the information that you need, you, you deal with every situation as you find it. Were you expecting to arrest someone or did you think actually this might be a case of we turn up, the thing de-escalates and it stops? I think based on the information that we'd already had, which is a distressed female and violence in the background, you're unlikely to leave that and leave it as it is because fear of of reprisals for the female caller and you need to make sure that everybody's safe and well when you leave. In that kind of situation, from what we'd been told, whilst you don't make a decision to arrest before you get there, it's unlikely for the welfare of all concerned that you would leave it in its in the state that it's in. And what did you see when you got there? So when I got there, pulled up outside the house, the door flew open, it was a row of terraced houses and two men ran from the scene, presumably the two men that the call handler had heard in the background. They looked extremely dishevelled, and angry and had clearly been in some kind of altercation, whether it was with each other or with a third party inside the dwelling, I didn't know, but there was they needed to be spoken with. So myself and my two colleagues instinctively ran after them. This is in the days where stab vests had just been issued, but it wasn't compulsory to wear them. So I didn't have mine on, but I think, as I recall, my two colleagues did, which meant they ran a lot slower than me. So I managed to get to one of the guys um, pretty quickly. I'm making a visual assessment of him. He is dishevelled. He's clearly been in some kind of altercation. Um, He's extremely drunk. He's verbally aggressive to me. And the information that I've got is that there's been some violence at the house and there's been a distressed female caller. So potentially, with all that information, you could be dealing with a murder, there could be a body in the house, or there may be no offences disclosed, just didn't know. So I I spoke with him, and whilst he was um, aggressive towards me, he wasn't particularly, or or he wasn't violent at all at this point. Um, So we walked back to the house in order that I could make some inquiries to see what was going on. By this point, I looked behind me and my two colleagues had apprehended the other guy and they were doing the same. So at this point, there were the the three of us, police officers, and the two apprehended guys. But crucially, you don't know what's going on inside the house. That's what we need to establish to see what the lady alleges. The The thing that you have in mind at the stage like that is the welfare of everybody, that everybody from this point is kept safe. But at this point, your presence in this area of town was drawing a crowd. Yes, it's um, a notorious area of Leeds. I always remember some graffiti on a wall in or around that area. um, And it it, it said something to the effect of another PC Blakelock, which was referring to Keith Blakelock, who was... um, gratuitously murdered in the riots in Tottenham in in the, I think it was 1985-86 time. Very notorious case. The offenders have never been brought to justice for that crime, but it it was an anti-police area, so people were starting to, just because of the presence of the police car, people were starting to come out of the houses. Um, It was a warm summer's evening, late August. Uh, People had been drinking. It was a Sunday, um, and crowds were starting to gather and were interested in us and what we were doing. What happened next? My two colleagues went into the house with the other guy. I waited outside of the house with, with my guy, and I heard an immediate fracas. The guy started shouting and swearing, um, and when I looked into the house, quite rightly, my two colleagues had, had uh, uh, made an arrest and he was um, he was on the floor in a prone position. He was being being handcuffed to the rear. He was having to be restrained. He was, he was violent. He was aggressive and clearly at that point under arrest. Um, so that, that decision was kind of taken out of their hands at that point. So my interest there was having established that they were in control of the situation in the house and that they were in no danger. My interest 
was focused on on my guy who at this point was being the same as he'd been all the time verbally aggressive a bit of a pain but not particularly causing any major problems at this time and perhaps had he been more aggressive and more violent that would have led me to take different action to what I took at that time and and, and what I did was I, I kind of made a barrier between myself and, and, and him in order that my colleagues could um, get out of the house and put the arrested man into the police vehicle at this point I've got my back to the row of houses my guy's on my right and I turn to the left to make sure my colleagues are okay and it's at that point where I just blacked out and I felt a sudden sharp thud to my chin and and I can only describe the sound uh, as being similar to the the ringing sensation that you get in your ears when I used to have when when you used to have hearing tests as a child and they I don't know if they still do these but you used to put a set of earphones on and these really dull little tones and you had to tap the table each time you heard them but that ringing sound in my ears was, was exactly what I heard when he thumped me at the point at that point I didn't particularly realize what had happened because I'd it the the, the punch was so hard that I was com- completely um, taken aback and um, I would suggest perhaps only semi-conscious from that one blow it was an extremely hard blow to the chin so I needed to then make sure that I was going to get out of that situation and at that point, I saw um, a hand come across my f- my front and grab hold of my shirt and tie at the top. And he pulled me over s- at right angle, so I was bent at the waist, facing the ground. And he was kept hold of me with his with his um, with his hand on my shirt. And then using his other other fist, um, just began raining in the punches to my head and face. And apart from the ringing in your ears, what else are you hearing? Are people cheering? Are they shocked? At that point, you don't hear anything because your focus is completely on what's going on with you. So I think it's a term called perceptual distortion. So I I didn't see anything around me other than what I was focused on right in front of me, which at that point, all I could see was the road because I was bent over at 90 degrees and, and, and I could see his legs and feet. And I was trying to get myself up so I could punch him, so I could get him away. And, and is that the police training? If someone punches no you, tra- you punch them back? There's no training for this. There's, There's no the, training for no being training attacked for by the, someone. The, the, so, of course, the police give you some training in terms of self-defence training, but that's in a, in a gym environment with your friends that you know are not going to hurt you, that you know if it goes wrong, the, the instructor will blow his whistle and it'll all end. There's no fear. It's all done in good fun. You have a bit of a laugh with your colleagues. It absolutely can in no way replicate a guy that's drunk, that's been drinking all day, that's trying to rip your head off as a bobby, that's got a a really heavy blow to your head and landed you in a semi-conscious state that's carrying on. There is no training you can have for that. So you're just reliant on instinct. You're not thinking, what am I supposed to do? All I'm thinking at that point is I need to survive. I need to get out of this situation. Now, I instinctively went to grab my side handle baton, which is something that was attached to my belt. Um, but because of the violence that he was using, that had all swiveled round on the belt and it, I, I couldn't easily get to it. And of course, I had no means of, of doing anything other than a very cursory search and a, and, and a quick grab. At that point, the, the, the punches just came in. And after however many moments, and I, I, it's very difficult to say how long that went on for, maybe 30 seconds, maybe a minute, but that is an awful long time when you're in that situation I remember seeing a a pair of dark trousers and 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 what looked like police boots and then I saw a police baton hit striking him on his legs so that was obviously one of my colleagues it was a female colleague that had come to assist but unfortunately she wasn't able to deliver the blows hard enough to restrain him so all that served to do was enhance his anger towards me and the punches that were raining in became harder as he became more angry that someone was now hitting him so it kind of escalated she escalated her use of force by then discharging cs gas but unfortunately in the melee the nozzle had had rotated slightly so when she went to squirt uh, the, the the offender she actually squirted me <laughs> first so at this point I'm, um, I'm 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 dealing with all the blows to the head the injuries that I'd sustained the semi um, concussed state and now I've got the face full of CS gas as well um, it was a it was a really volatile and dangerous situation at this point 
And that's when you kicked. So at this point, he went down, as I saw it, on one knee and one foot with his arms raised in what I saw in that moment in the state that I was in as being a position where he could have attacked me again. And I thought that's what he was going to do. So I kicked him. Once? I, my recollection, and it's always been my case, and I've racked my brains to try and think, have I forgotten something? But I've kicked him once. And at that point, he's gone back. And other officers have then jumped on top of him and, and eventually been able to restrain him. The prosecution case against me was that I kicked him more than once and that there were repeated kicks to the head. And I genuinely don't remember that. In a way, I wish I did. And I wish my case had always been consistent with theirs because the the court case ended up being about my version of events versus theirs. And, and what, re, what I did or didn't do on the night to me was irrelevant. It was that I was using force to defend myself and whether I kicked him once, twice, three times or four times didn't matter to me. It was that he needed to be restrained and I was extremely frightened, dazed, um, concussed and in a state where my, my uh, perception of him was different to everybody else's. I, I, I can more than justify kicking him more than once but I genuinely don't remember doing that. And since then, all the evidence that's come out in terms of the um, forensic pathologist's report and the scientific support unit forensic report following an analysis of my clothing and boots and the doctor's reports that highlight the injuries that were sustained to this individual throughout the whole day, not necessarily from me, um, because he'd been involved in a fight with his mate, remember, so who knows where the injuries came from. But none of the injuries were consistent with being repeatedly kicked, and the forensic pathologist report said that. At the time, presumably he then got arrested yes. for assaulting you. Yes, he was arrested for various offences, one of which was assaulting me. And you got back in the car with your colleagues thinking that's the end of that? No, I was I was quite badly injured. So I went back to the police station and I went straight to the to the changing rooms basically to look at myself. My shirt was completely ripped off. I was quite badly injured. I'd got so I couldn't see out of one of my eyes. I can't remember which eye it was now. Um, I think it was my left eye. I'd got a chipped tooth. It wasn't a run-of-the-mill job. The injuries that I'd sustained in it were more than what you would expect on a on an everyday arrest. What did you think would happen next? That he would be charged, convicted, and that would be the end of it. And, and you'd I, have a recovery period and yeah. get back to work. Yeah, I'd get better, sort myself out. That would be the end of it. Did you think at least you'd have to file a report or that someone would ask you about the level of force that you'd used? Of course, you always have to document what's happened in any in any situation that you're involved in. And I did that in my pocket notebook straight away or, or when I was fit and able to do so at a reasonable time afterwards. Um, and obviously gave a number of accounts in terms of witness statements. Um, I was subsequently interviewed and ultimately evidence in court. But, but in the very early stages, before I knew this, this was turning against me, absolutely no way did I think that I was having to justify what I did. It was absolutely, completely justified. You only need to look at the injuries that I sustained. The the fact that this guy was, um, was a known offender, he was drunk, he was violent. The injuries that I sustained in an unprovoked attack on, a, on an on-duty police officer. And the, the, that, that doesn't give you a license to beat someone up but it does give you a license to defend yourself from a violent assault. And that's what I did. And you only need to look at his injuries or lack of them to, to see that what I did was completely reasonable. So what actually happened is he was found guilty of assault on you. Yes. Although his sentence was pretty cursory. Yes. Uh, community service, basically. Got a community it? order, yes. And you had proceedings brought against you for assaulting him. Yes. When you found out that was happening... How did you feel? I was surprised. I'd got a number of years of service at that point and, and it was the first time I'd ever been investigated for anything. So it was a complete surprise. But I was really comfortable with it in that I thought it was the police doing what it thought it needed to do in light of a complaint being made from a member of the public and that when all the evidence came out, it would be bloody obvious, to, 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 to coin a phrase, that I, I had acted completely within the law. In the first 12 months after the incident, I was being investigated. I hadn't been charged at this point. 
at the point that I was charged, that was where the bombshell hit me. I didn't think that would happen, and it did. I mean, what was your life like in the days leading up to the trial then? Sheer hell. I mean, at that point, it's been going on for two years. A two-year period is an awful long time to have this hanging over you. A one-year period of being on bail for assault in circumstances where you think that there is absolutely no evidence to get get to a second stage investigation, let alone being charged with an offence, you start to think, is there a bit of momentum behind this? So you consider all options and all eventualities, one of which was obviously that I could end up being convicted. And if I were to be convicted, an eventuality out of that could be that I could go to prison as a police officer. You can't fail but to dwell on that in the weeks and months leading up to your trial. How did the court case go? The trial judge from the very outset seemed to want to push the case through. The prosecuting barrister said on day one of the trial that there was no case to answer. And because I'd been charged with ABH, actual bodily harm, which is section 47 assault, there were no injuries on the guy that I'd arrested that would substantiate that charge. So he basically said, Your Honour, there's no case to answer. And it was it was looking like it was going to be discontinued from the outset. And the judge said at the very outset, before the jury had even been sworn in, let me put you on notice that if I think ABH won't work, then I'll charge him with something else. And the alternative there is common assault. This is 23 months after the incident. A common assault is normally statute barred at six months. In other words, once six months from the incident has passed, you can't be charged with that offence. So it was highly unusual, but it did indicate what the judge's attitude towards the case was. That well, he wanted. Why do you think that's what the judge's attitude was? I will never know the answer to that. I wish I did. Because usually when you talk to people that feel they've been the victim of miscarriage of justice, it's in the other way around. They feel that the judge is in the pockets of the police that the judge isn't listening to their side of events and is too willing to side with the establishment. In this case, you are the establishment and you feel the judge was against you. His summing up of the case in terms of summing up the legal points around self-defence were woeful. And if I'd have been on the jury, I would have convicted based on the judge's summing up. Again, the, the legal points there weren't properly covered. I've had that independently looked looked at by retired circuit judges, very senior judges that have said he's failed to instruct the jury properly. And uh, what was the case for the prosecution? Because uh, they obviously had the guy who you kicked, but he's a known offender himself who also got done for beating up you. So not that creditable. Who else did they have? So the, the prosecution witnesses included several people from the street that night the crowd that we talked about, they were queuing up to give evidence, albeit completely inconsistent with each other. I don't think any any two um, descriptions of, of the incident matched and, and, and were wildly off in, in places. A number of the witnesses gave evidence and said, um, when asked by my defence counsel whether they'd spoken about the incident, said, oh yeah, we've got our heads together to get our story straight. And that is a direct quote of what one of the witnesses said. Yet the judge took it upon himself to warn defence witnesses and not prosecution witnesses to tell the truth. And what about your colleagues that had been there with you on the night? So there was a police sergeant that arrived at the scene at the very end. She gave evidence against me. And there was a, a probation, a constable that was working with that sergeant who corroborated to some degree the prosecution case. But the key witness in this was the police sergeant who gave evidence against me, saying that what I'd done was um, was amounted to assault and wasn't justified. And your argument against that would be, how can you say it's disproportionate if you didn't see what it was in proportion to? Not only that, um, but, but also the fact that unless you're being subject to, to the assault that I was, you can't possibly know how I was feeling. And it's the perception of the accused that really matters in an assault case. And I think the best analogy to give there is if a firearms officer shoots somebody dead because that person holds up an imitation firearm, the fact that a witness knew that it was an imitation firearm is irrelevant. It's what that officer genuinely believed at the time he pulled the trigger. So what she thought about my actions didn't really matter to me and I don't think it should have mattered to the court. She should have given her account of what she saw but what she thought about it, to me, was beyond the scope of her evidence. 
Um, but the judge relied very heavily and, 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 and milked the fact that she was um, appalled by what I had done and thought that it was an assault. In, instead of concentrating on the fact that she'd given four accounts at this point, none of which were the same. And her first account, in which she made a full pocket notebook entry, made no mention whatsoever of repeated kicks. She says just one kick in her pocket notebook in the singular. No mention at all of repeated kicks. That was never brought out to the jury. Their inconsistencies with the forensic evidence were never brought out to the jury. It was all tainted towards this emotive response from a senior officer at the scene that thought this was so wrong. That's what swayed the jury instead of looking at the facts and dealing with legal points. What was the sentence? So I got, I was acquitted of the ABH and I was convicted of common assault after the judge charged me with it halfway through my trial. And I was sentenced to four months imprisonment. What ran through your head when you heard that? Well, I kind of knew it was coming because I'd been given five weeks bail prior to the sentence hearing. And the judge said when I was convicted, when you come back here in five weeks, you can take it as read that you will be going through the back door, not the front door. And the back door is the door down to the cells. I was hoping, obviously, that he was calling my bluff and that it was just five weeks that he wanted me to dwell on it and and, and, and fester on, on the threat. But when I actually heard him give me the sentence and send me down that's when I went into survival mode because I was now no longer a police officer. I was now an inmate that had to survive in prison and I was going to be a very unpopular inmate that everybody would want a piece of. What did it actually mean in terms of how you modified your behaviour though? Well, at first you're just numb. So I was I was quickly taken into a um, a cell and your first moments alone after after I'd stripped off and been given my prison issue clothing and gone through to, to the cell that I was going to be housed in. All of which, by the way, presumably was at the hands of fellow police officers or prison officers. Prison officers, yes. Yeah. I mean, that yeah. must have felt, just that must have felt very weird being on the other side of that. Yeah, client. yeah. It was, it, was, it was unbelievable because I've always been an advocate for the, for the system, for the judiciary. And there I was now being treated by prison officers as a criminal, which in the eyes of the law I then was. Um, something that, as I said, as a son of a retired police officer with a private education that's completely law-abiding, a situation you you can't imagine. But when I was actually sentenced and when when I when I got there and and I had time to sit in my cell on my own and and and, and ponder on it, it's at that point that I thought, well, you're gonna have to look after yourself here, mate, because nobody else is. How? How do you change? What do you? What are you thinking? Is well, it every interaction you're thinking, I could be outed here? Yes, every single time. Well, I knew I was going to be outed in terms of the fact that I was a cop because it was in the news and, and they were chanting. So it, the chants were going around the prison already that there's a cop inside and we're going to kill the pig and we're going to carve you up and all this kind of stuff. Kill the pig. Kill the pig. Is that I, what you heard whilst you were trying to sleep in your cell? Yes, we're going to carve you up. There's a copper inside. We're going to carve you up. Those were words that I, I distinctly remember. Um, they used to come to my cell hatch to give me food. I'd get to the cell hatch and just as I got there, they'd push the food onto me or try and spill a hot, pour a hot drink over me. So it was, it was hostile to say the least. So in answer to your question in terms of what you do about that, you keep your eyes open, you keep your mouth shut and you get your fists ready. Did you ever have to use them? I, I did, yeah. I had to look after myself a few times. Um, there was an incident in the shower block at Armley where I had a, a, an interaction with somebody that, that decided they didn't like me and wanted to do some harm to me. Um, so I, I took action to protect myself there. But of course, you don't want to do it because you think you might be antagonising people by standing up for yourself. But equally, you show any sign of weakness in prison and they will pounce on it. So I had to show some strength in there, strength of character and physical strength against individuals that were wanting to pursue a course of harm against me. What were your feelings about Omni as an institution? I thought a number of the officers in there were quite um, officious, but, but in general, I thought a lot of them were very sympathetic to me and one of them in particular would come to my cell hatch quite a lot just to check that I was okay and Did that make you nervous in and of itself that other prisoners might perceive you getting preferential treatment? No, because they absolutely went out of the way to make sure I didn't get preferential treatment. 
that that's a, a rule in prison. Prison officers will won't do that for any prisoner. Well, certainly in my experience, then there was no chance of that happening. So I didn't stand out in that respect. What was a typical day like? Probably around twenty three and a half hours in my cell. And was that for your own protection? Yeah, I think so because a lot of them went out on exercise and did various activities, education, physical activity. There was an exercise yard there. But of course, I couldn't mix with any of the prisoners, so I was kept inside my cell. What coping mechanisms did you develop in prison to keep yourself sane? I took a book in there, Tony Adams' autobiography, which lived with me for... That will always be a book that has a special place in my heart because I read it about 15 times. But I got some paper and pen, and I used to go through all the photographs in the book and draw them. And I think in my in my book, A Fair Cop, there's some photographs of those illustrations that I did. Um, one thing that I did, I had a bit more hair on my head than I have nowadays. Um, I used to pull hairs out of my head and then just throw them into the cell. And I used to spend hours looking for the hairs um, to see if I could find them. That kept you focused and sane. I had a really interesting encounter with the prison chaplain who said that... Um, one thing that you can do to take control of the situation is lie on your bed and just say to God, take control of my life for a bit. And I've not, this is not for one moment me saying that I've become really religious, but that did help. And I can never turn my back on the fact that that helped me. And and whether there was a God helping me or not, I don't know. And I've never really analysed it. But equally, I won't ever shirk from saying that was a coping mechanism that worked. And... Did it change the way you thought about people that you'd helped put away before? No, because I was always fair. It, I, I was always fair with people that I arrested. Um, so I never really saw anybody go to prison when I was a police officer that I didn't think deserved to go to prison. But then I suppose had... what I'm saying is if in prison you then met people and you thought, oh, he's a decent bloke. Ah, that's different. So, so what what prison taught me was that. So, so that's from the difference between a, being a police officer and being a, a, a an everyday civilian human being. There were people in there that were guilty of quite serious crimes, but underneath it, there was a person that, in some cases, I quite liked. Um, notwithstanding the fact that as a police officer, absolutely they should be there in prison for the crimes they've committed. I suppose that's it, isn't it? Is it? What I'm getting at is as a police officer, of course, you're trained to see that person as their crime. The fact that they've got human motivations underneath it, that's for the prosecution and the defence to work out afterwards, isn't it? Yes. Whereas you're being faced with a real person, maybe not even knowing what their crime was until you've got to know them. It's very different. Yeah, yeah, it is very different, yeah. And, of course, you take a completely non-judgmental approach because you're in there as a convicted prisoner yourself. And what I do now is, in any in any walk of life, in any circumstances, I have an open mind to everybody that I meet and I always listen to the backstory that they've got for any issues or hardship or, emo- or emotional difficulties or whatever they may have in life. I always take a subjective approach and a non-judgmental one, and that's a really positive experience that I've got out of this. How did it feel talking to your dad? And he was a police officer. He was the reason you became a police officer when you were in prison and you were calling him. My dad was great. He he said from the very early stages when the incident had first happened, he, he said, if I find out you've done this, I'll not stand by you. Similarly, he said, if I find out that once I've read the statements and I've looked at the evidence, I find that I won't leave your side. And and the latter was true. He's never left my side from the day it happened to today. He's absolutely appalled by the way the police treated me. I've never in any interview up to today um, used the word corruption against the police. I've always been completely balanced with the evidence and spoken... The, the facts are there without using emotive words like corruption. But now 21 years on and, and, and 19 years after my conviction, I've acquired so much evidence from the initial investigation that I intend to eventually take into the Court of Appeal that there can only be one motivation of the police. And that that is that there was some agenda behind it that wasn't underpinned by transparency, integrity and honesty. Um, And I can give hard and fast examples of that. One example would be that in 2007, 
I asked the police under the Data Protection Act to have a subject access request to all my personal information regarding to this case, and they said it had been um, that, that they no longer owned it. That it had been, I think, the word they used in the correspondence to me was weeded. In other words, it, no longer available. I kept I kept working on this, and I've never stopped. And in I think it was around 2013, 2014. Um, an anti-corruption officer within West Yorkshire Police managed to find a box full of papers, the, the specific papers that I was trying to find in 2007. And I received a subsequent half-hearted apology from the police saying we've made a bit of a mistake. I've then subsequently tried to get these papers and the police have consistently stopped me from getting them. And I'm currently in another subject access request process in order to get these papers, having been via the Police and Crime Commissioner's Office to try and get them. That to me is not open and transparent and honest. Um, th there can be no justification for denying me the evidence to scrutinise in order to take what I think is a credible case of the Court of Appeal. Some people listening to this will say, I totally understand why this still plays on your mind. It changed the whole course of your life. You always wanted to be a police officer. Now you're not. You went to prison and you don't think you should have been there. But other people listening will just say, for his own mental health, he should let this go. Yeah, uh, my challenge back to them would be for my own mental health, I should never let this go and should seek to clear my name until the very end. The, the easiest thing for me now, 20 years on, my conviction's spent, I've got a good career, I'm financially secure, I've got a lovely family. The easiest thing for me now would be to be at peace with the fact that I'm guilty of the offence and I could be at peace if I was guilty, but I can't be at peace because I'm not guilty. And putting it to bed and just letting it lie is not the way to have in peace. The way to have peace is to fight it until the very end. And the chap that you kicked, was the last time you saw him when he punched you? No, it wasn't because he attended at court. And you looked him in the eyes in court? No. The reason for that is you're told by your legal team not to look at anybody in the eyes because it can be seen as intimidating. So um, the instruction that I got from my legal team at the time was to remain passive in the in the dock, which obviously is something I would have done anyway, but certainly not to look at him. Because you still live in the Greater Leeds area. Yeah. If he does too, yeah. I mean, it's not impossible you bump into each other how would you feel in that situation I, I don't feel anything towards him at all he's seen an opportunity to make some money out of the police the police were stupid enough to fall for it you know good luck to him he's anti-police it's not personal to me in fact when he was interviewed the day after he'd assaulted me he said on in a taped interview i want to apologize to the police officer that got it last night and they were his exact words referring to the beating that he'd given me so I think there is an ounce of decency in there somewhere when he'd sobered up, but then the pound signs came along and he realised that he was onto something when he was approached by the police to pursue a complaint. You know, that's that's the course that he took. So you could sit him in this room with me now. I wouldn't particularly make him a cup of tea, but I don't really have any feelings towards him at all. Michael Bunting. You can find out more about him and his book, A Fair Cop, on his website, affaircop.com. .co.uk. And remember, if you've got a story you'd like to share with our listeners, contact us via the feedback button on our website, modernman2ends.co.uk. Still to come, our record of the week, and Alex Fox is up next after this. As ever, it is time for the Modern Man to reach its climax. Well, sort of. There is another bit afterwards, but you know what I mean. I'm making a sexual pun. It's the Foxhole with Alex Fox. Hey, Alex. Hey, Ollie. How are you doing? Yeah, very well, thank you. And yourself? Cocking all over the world. Uh, what have you been up to? I have been reading a new book by Dr. Justin Lay Miller. Mm -hmm. uh, the book is called Tell Me What You Want, and that's exactly what he's investigated. A whopping 89% of the people that Dr. Lay Miller surveyed uh, confessed to having fantasised about threesomes, which makes doing the doers more than two the most common lay dream, I'm coining that as a sexual <laughs> daydream, uh, yeah. of all time. See, that doesn't surprise me because if you look, one of the things that I find really interesting when you go to some of the porn sites is you can see the search terms as they come in. And what I find interesting, especially after talking to you about some of the very niche things people are into, is that the most common things people search for are really quite, 
I mean, vanilla stuff, aren't they? It is your sort More of girl banal next door. More banal than anal. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it is. It's your girl next door, boy next door type scenario. Yeah, threesomes. It's stuff that isn't particularly racy, but is more racy than being in a consensual, heterosexual marriage for 10 years. Well, people are even less racy than that in some ways, because one of the things that this research showed is that while lots of folks might be thinking about threesomes, they're not thinking about them with two strangers. They're often including, if they're in a coupled relationship at present, they're including their current partner. Mm. So rather than uh, imagining a threesome being a sign that your relationship might be on the rocks, it's a sign that your partner still wants to get their rocks off with you but they just want to bring something added in there if you think about that that could be a sign that actually your partner shares a really deep sense of passion and trust with you they still really fancy you and they feel that the connection you have is strong enough to involve somebody else in it okay time for our listener question sponsored as ever by our friends at mycondom.com who stock the passante sensiva uh, which at 0.9 not two five millimetres thick is a very, very thin condom. It's one of the finest on the market. And it's made out of polyurethane. So it's actually weirdly a bit more rigid and stiff than normal latex condoms. But some people find that quite comfortable and stimulating. It tends to be slightly tighter um, on the penis, which uh, a lot of people find rubs them exactly the right way. And our question is from Anna, who says, During my final year of university, I was living with a girl who had a different partner every week. This girl was desperate to get pregnant because she had POS. What's that? Uh, I believe that they mean polycystic ovary syndrome. A lot of people will be more familiar with the acronym PCOS. So she would tell guys she 100% couldn't get pregnant so that they wouldn't use any contraception. Blimey. Uh, This turned out not to be true when she then became pregnant by a very naive 17-year-old who was terrified, but she didn't seem to care about his feelings. She was just happy to be pregnant. That pregnancy actually miscarried, but as far as I'm aware, she's still telling guys she can't get pregnant, then having unprotected sex with them. Myself and my partner are always debating whether or not we should tell these guys or not. Well, this is not a standard question of dick. There is a lot to unpick here. First up, I want to talk about PCOS. Now, it's difficult to know quite how many women have this condition, but it is thought to be incredibly common. Some estimates put it at about one in five women in the UK. So there's a lot of people out there who this affects. And it's got three main features. Everyone who has this will experience these to different degrees. Um, the main one is, surprise, surprise, having polycystic ovaries. But the surprise there is that that doesn't mean you've got cysts. It's a, it's a bit of a misnomer, really. Now, in a healthy ovary, there will be lots of fluid-filled sacs, also known as follicles, that swell up, rupture and release an egg each menstrual cycle. With someone who has PCOS, that process gets repeatedly interrupted. So the follicle fills up uh, and then the egg isn't, isn't released. So there are all these underdeveloped follicles, also referred to confusingly as cysts, kind of lined up, ready to go, but never quite getting where they're supposed to be. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, PCOS sufferers tend to have irregular periods. Um, some doctors say that if you're having eight or less periods a year, then that's a sign to go and get checked out. And you tend to have higher levels of male hormones, androgens in the body, and they cause all sorts of physical signs and symptoms such as having excess facial hair or a furrier body than you might expect. Uh, It can, of course, you to gain weight. Uh, The hair on your head can thin with kind of male pattern baldness. Uh, And also it can cause acne or oily skin. So there's a lot of different things at play if you have PCOS. And are any of those things a 100% guarantee that you're not going to get pregnant. PCOS can make it harder to fall pregnant and it also can put you at more of a risk of having a miscarriage if you do fall pregnant. Mm. However, it would be certainly untrue to say that anyone who had it was absolutely infertile. Even if you were diagnosed with a case of this that was causing particular problems for you, there's loads and loads that can be done by doctors to help you out. Now, I'm interested in this story in particular. I'm wondering whether the girl in question actually got an official PCOS 
diagnosis from her doctor or whether it was something that was mentioned as a possibility because she was told she had PCOS before she got to uni. I'd expect her to be in her mid to late teens. And a lot of the symptoms that I've mentioned, like acne, Mm. your weight going up and down, your periods being irregular. It's just being a teenage girl. It's just being a teenager, yeah. Yeah. So it might have been that a medical professional had maybe mentioned PCOS as a possibility to her. To actually make a proper diagnosis, they do things like an ultrasound of uh, the womb and and ovary areas so they could see what was going on with those follicles. Uh, They might run some blood tests to check your hormone levels. Uh, But even then, they wouldn't be able to tell you exactly what your prognosis was. But even if you do have a condition which means you 100% can't get pregnant, that's not something that you should be telling the men you're sleeping with, is it? Because, you know... If you're someone who's concerned about your fertility because you want to be a, a parent in future, not protecting yourself from STIs is a really bad idea because some sexually transmitted infections can cause things like internal scarring if they're left undiagnosed for a long time, which they can be if they don't show symptoms. She could have been actively making her chances of being a mum in future lessened by the fact that she was having lots of unprotected sex. Also, now I looked into the legality of this Mm. of telling somebody that you were infertile when you weren't absolutely sure of that or I I looked into related issues for example women saying that they're on the pill when they're not to men Mm -hmm. and whether there would be a legal case for a man in that in that scenario were a child born to say well I was misled I don't want to pay child support all the legal cases that I could find maintain the idea that when two people enter into having intercourse with one another, they should always take responsibility for the idea that no matter what they believe about to be true about their bodies, no matter how much they're trying to protect themselves, one of the implicit risks of intercourse is that pregnancy may occur. Mm. And if it does then you have to take responsibility however you may see that responsibility and if that child is carried to term and you are the parents of it then there are consequences to that. So to take Anna's question then, should she and her partner be telling the male partners of this woman about her deception or not? I would say that it is each of those men's individual responsibility to make sure that they are protecting themselves with condoms. However, the person I'd be speaking to here and whose behaviour concerns me on a number of levels, is the girl. Rather than talking to her partners, Mm. which if there are several of them every month, uh, these friends are unlikely to maybe know very well, and and perhaps it isn't their business, maybe they should be talking to their female friend. Not least because if she has had a diagnosis of PCOS, there are things that she can do to make it more likely that she'll get pregnant in the future. But let's say she does know her diagnosis, and she has got it, and she doesn't want her flatmates to be telling her what to do in her sex life. I mean, how do you respond to someone who you know is deceiving the men she's sleeping with who does not want to talk to you about it? I guess the best advice I could give would be for them to approach her with an air of wanting to support her, wanting to help her, mm. uh, being concerned about her wishes. and Rather saying, than lecturing her. Yeah, rather than lecturing her, rather than telling her off for her behaviour, which um, some therapists would interpret as being signs of a, of a psychological issue here, that, that, kind, of, uh, that kind of lying. Mm. Approach her by saying, we want to help. Maybe you could say, hey, uh, you know, I happened to mention PCOS to my GP or my GP brought it up with me or I saw it on TV, I mm. read something in a paper, whatnot. I heard this about it and I thought of you because I know how much you'd like to be a mum in future. Mm. This is what I learned. Do you want to talk about it? Here's this resource. How can I help? Okay, and if you would like Alex to help you with your sex question in a future edition of The Foxhole... You go directly to our website, you click the feedback button, then you tell me as much or as little about yourself as you would like to, and I try and give you my best advice. Another one to tap into your browser, of course, is mycondom.com. And then you need to tap in the code FOXHOLE to get 15% off everything on the site. Well, that is nearly it for this week's Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new ambassador. It is Cal in Maine, USA, who says, Ollie, I've just bought you all beer. Are you really going to drink that warm? 
Yes, Cal, that is how we Brits do it. Uh, He says, thanks for all your hard work and creativity. I am moved and informed and amazed by all three of you. And the musical moments at the end are always a tasty frosting on the pod cake. Uh, Cal, thank you for the email. You are now our main ambassador for the beautiful state of Maine. Congratulations. Music now and our theme is by Django Django. The full track is called Skies Over Cairo and this is today's tasty frosting on the pod cake. It's called Water Run. It's by Californian psych rock outfit Fine Points and it's out now on Caroline Records. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer Matt Hill and we'll see you next Tuesday. So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance. On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine. On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every week. Weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.